This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Nomis and Science Young Explorer Award. Are you doing excellent research that deserves recognition? The Nomis and Science Young Explorer Award recognizes bold young researchers who ask fundamental questions at the intersection of the life and social sciences. Researchers who take risks to address relevant and exciting questions with creative approaches, regardless of the research outcome. Submissions are due May 15th. Visit science.org slash nomis, that's N-O-M-I-S, to apply today. Welcome to the Science Podcast for January 29th, 2016. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, Matthew Ossendriver talks about ancient Babylonian astronomers, and David Grimm is back with the latest from our online daily news site. Support for the Science Podcast is provided by AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science. Now we have David Grimm, editor for our daily news site. He's calling in from home because of all the snow that we have from Snowzilla. Um, and he's here to talk about some recent online stories. I'm Sarah Crespi. First up, we have a story on walking like a T-Rex. We're going to be talking Tyrannosaurus here. So let's do a rundown on the numbers. These monstrous dinos lived about 66 million years ago, hung around North America mostly, and could be over 12 meters long and almost 7 metric tons in weight. The big question, though, is could you outrun one? And now some researchers think that they have some evidence about how fast these guys went. What do they know, Dave? Well, what they did was, uh, you know, obviously we can't go back in time, but researchers, if they're trying to get a f- figure out how fast an animal, an ancient animal moved, what they really need are footprints, and really more than one set of footprints. You really need a trackway to get a sense of the size of the gate and uh, maybe even the, the deepness of the impression to get a sense of potential walking speed. And that's where the researchers lucked out here. They analyzed some um, footprints that had formed along an ancient shoreline in what is now Wyoming. The footprints are about 66 million years old, and the researchers believe they belong to a meat-eating dinosaur likely T-Rex, although if it was a T-Rex, it was probably an adolescent T-Rex. How big were these footprints? How many were there? There were only three footprints, but that was enough to give them a sense of how fast this animal may have moved. How do they make a calculation of their speed based on three footprints? Well, with the footprints, they were able to estimate how high the dinosaur's hips must have been above the ground. That's from the length of the footprint. And then they used some common formulas for this kinds of things to determine that the creature's hips were likely somewhere between one and a half and two meters off the ground. Then they measured the distance between the footprints, and they used an equation based on observations of living walking bipeds to estimate this dino's walking speed. And what they came up with was a result that this thing was moving probably between 
four and a half and eight kilometers per hour, or about three to five miles per hour. And for the non-athletes out there and in here, does that mean it would be easy to get away from one of these guys? Yeah, it probably means this thing was plotting about the pace of an amateur marathon runner or even a middle-aged power walker. So walking, the T-Rex may have overtaken you, but you could probably be able to sprint away from it pretty quickly at these speeds. But this isn't necessarily their top speed, right? Well, that's a good question. I mean, we don't really know what this animal was doing at this time. Was it just sort of ambling along or was it running? And it's likely that the animal could get a lot faster. In fact, some other researchers suggested that T-Rexes could travel as fast as 11 kilometers an hour or about 7 miles an hour. But that's still a speed that any halfway decent amateur runner could beat. So as long as you were in good physical shape, you probably could avoid being eaten by a T-Rex. Luckily for us, uh, we weren't around at the time of the dinosaurs to find out. Next up, we have a story on the unconscious brain. What is the unconscious brain doing? When knocked out under anesthesia, the brain maintains many body functions, but consciousness is shut off. Researchers looking to better understand consciousness think that looking at the brain in this state may help. Okay, Dave, give us your best definition of consciousness. (laughs) I leave it to the experts who basically say that consciousness is essentially a state where the brain is processing and combining multiple inputs from many different senses and sort of forming a coherent picture out of that that gives us our sort of experience of the world. For example, if you see an orange, your experience of that orange is made up of a lot of different senses that your brain is integrating. So sight, smell, eventually the taste and the touch of the fruit, all these combine to give us this conscious concept of an orange. That's the first-person perspective. That's what we feel when we're conscious. In this study, they were looking for a consciousness signature that they could detect externally. How do they do that? Right. Well, they really want to see, well, what's happening in our brain during consciousness, and how does that differ from unconsciousness? And what they did was they used a drug called propofol, which is an anesthetic frequently used in surgery. It induces a loss of consciousness. And what the researchers did is they took 12 volunteers And they put them in an fMRI machine, which measures blood flow to various parts of the brain, gives you a sense of where the activity in the brain is. And then they gave these volunteers propofol. And what they were looking at is how does the activity of the brain change from wakefulness to sedation to unconsciousness and then back to recovery. There are some poetic descriptions in this story comparing the two states of the brain. Can you give us a basic explanation and then we'll move into the metaphor? (laughs) Well... While the participants were conscious, the brains generated a flurry of ever-changing activity. So the fMRI machine was showing a multitude of overlapping networks that were activating in the brain, this sort of flow of consciousness. But when the propofol kicked in, the brain networks reduced their connectivity. They became much less variable. It was almost as if the brain was stuck in a rut. It was using the same pathways over and over again. Instead of this multitude of crisscrossing pathways, it seemed almost a bit random. Here comes the metaphor. The researchers try to explain their result in terms of exploration by car. Right. You can imagine the way cars might move through a city. So the cars are always moving in the same way. For example, if they're moving from point A to point B and back again, they keep on doing that. They're sort of stuck in a rut. And that's sort of what the researchers saw with the unconscious brain. But with a conscious brain, it was as if the cars were moving as if they were exploring throughout the city. So they're going a lot of different streets. They were testing a lot of different routes, and 
by doing so, they were actually getting a full map of the city rather than just a particular portion of the city. So this may relate to how our brains are actually sort of forming this conception of consciousness by exploring all of these different senses and variables and outputs and inputs rather than just being kind of stuck in a rut. What about conscious states not induced by drugs, like a coma? Would they see the same thing there? Well, that's one interesting application of the study because what we know is that it's obviously very hard to wake people out of a coma. And is it because their brains are stuck in this rut and they can't be roused out of that rut? And that's a potential place for future research. Lastly, we have a story on double domestication. As we've talked about before, cats just haven't been domesticated that long, something like 10,000 years, compared with dogs, which have potentially been domesticated as long as 30,000 years. Studying the onset of domestication, even if only a short 10,000 years ago, seems to involve a lot of storytelling. It's really hard to peer that far back in time and make firm conclusions about our relationship with animals. But what if we did it twice? That makes it a repeated experiment, right, Dave? That's right. <laughs> What's the evidence here for double domestication? Well, here's what we know. We know that cats were domesticated probably around 10,000 years ago, somewhere in the Middle East. And what's really important about this is this was a time of early farming. People were starting to grow crops and store grain. The grain was attracting rodents and wild cats, basically. And in fact, in this case, a cat called the Near Eastern Wildcat, which is about the same size of today's house cats, but a very feral creature, began to wander into some of these villages, kill the rats, made itself at home, and it thought kind of domesticated its, itself. That's sort of our story or the theory, the ongoing theory about how cats became domesticated. And what we're seeing in this new study is potentially is the same thing happening about 5,000 years later in a completely different part of the world uh, in China. And here again, what's important is this seems to be happening in ancient farming villages. These were uh, millet farmers in central China. They also had wildcats in their vicinity. And a couple of years ago, a study came out that showed that these farmers seem to have had cats in their villages. In some cases, cats that they seem to have been taken care of. What's the evidence, though, for that they might have been taken care of? So what archaeologists reported a couple of years ago was finding remains of a few cats in this one particular village in central China, some mandibles, pelvic bones, perhaps representing a few individuals. What was interesting about the bones is some of them, at least one of them, the teeth showed signs of a lot of wear, which indicated this was an older cat, which is unusual if it was just a wild animal, which might suggest it was taken care of by people. One of the bones showed evidence that this cat had been eating a diet high in grain. Cats are sort of are obligate carnivores, which means they mostly eat meat. And so if a cat's eating a lot of grain, it suggests that it's being potentially fed different kinds of food by people. They were being taken care of, but were they cats in the sense that we think of as cats? Were they related to these same Middle Eastern forebears of my tabby? And that's the question this new study solves. And what it turns out is an analysis of the bones suggests that these actually were not Near Eastern wildcats, which is the ancestor of all of today's house cats that uh, was domesticated in the Middle East about 10,000 years ago. These were, in fact, leopard cats. And this is a cat about the same size as house cats, But if anybody's seen a Bengal breed, it has these very sort of dramatic kind of tiger-stripe-type markings, and that's what this cat looks like in the wild. Now, what's really interesting is it suggests that if this was indeed domestication, that these Chinese farmers had embarked on domesticating a completely different species of cat 
than had been domesticated in the Middle East 5,000 years earlier. So does this actually change the story of how we think cats, this leopard cat or the other kind of cats, were domesticated? Or does it reinforce what we already know? It really reinforces the story because you can see in these two very different times, very different parts of the world, and even very different cultures that we're seeing a potentially similar domestication event taking place. And what's really cool about that is the commonality in both of these cases is farming. And we know farming arose in different parts of the world. And what this suggests is that wherever you had farming, and as long as you had potentially wild cats in the vicinity, that you could have had this opportunity for cats to be domesticated. And as I, as I say in the story, it sort of suggests, I've got to go out on a limb a little bit, but that the rise of farming and hence the rise of human civilization may have been destined to give rise to the house cat. Wow. Okay. Well, what about these cats in China? Does that mean that, you know, kitties in China today are related to the leopard cat? Actually, we don't see any evidence of the leopard cat in today's cats. As far as I noted, the Bengal breed, which is actually made by crossing house cats with leopard cats. But what this suggests is that if this was domestication, it was it hit a dead end at some point. And what scientists believe is perhaps a thousand, a couple thousand years ago, that the original house cats made their way into China. And the Chinese said, well, these, these cats are a lot, a lot, maybe a lot more tame, a lot more useful than these leopard cats we've been trying to domesticate. And so what's thought is that the house cats took over. And what's really cool is actually in the Tang Dynasty, which began in China in the year 16, 18, there's paintings from this period which show what very much look like today's house cats in the art of the time. So we know at least by 618 AD, there were traditional house cats in China. Okay, what else is on the site this week, Dave? Well, Sarah, we've got a story about a wristband that could not only make you a better athlete, but also monitor your health by sampling your sweat. Also a story about a computer program that thinks a lot like the human brain and was able to defeat a professional player of the ancient Chinese game of Go. For Science Insider, our policy blog, we've got a story about the U.S. charging some drug researchers with selling trade secrets to China. Also a story about why lawmakers' plans to combat sexual harassment by scientists could get complicated. So be sure to check out all these stories on the site. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Sarah. David Grimm is the editor for our online daily news site. I'm Sarah Crespi. You can check out the latest news and the policy blog, Science Insider, at news.sciencemag.org. All over the planet, there are relics that show our ancestors looked at the night sky and thought. Thought about gods, the universe, the seasons... And math. Yes, math. In Babylon, ancient astronomers wrote down chains of equations that, according to new translations and interpretations, show that not only were they doing simple arithmetic, we're talking back before 50 BCE, they were also doing geometry. I spoke with Mathieu Ossendriver about his work with a set of cuneiform tablets that describe the motion of Jupiter using the area under a curve. The Babylonian culture was one of the ancient cultures in which there was a lot of interest in the stars and planets. More than any ancient culture, Babylonians began to do this, observe the stars, make reports and interpret the motion of the planets very early, like 1800 BC. They began to observe signs in the sky, the moon, the sun, the planets and the stars, and interpret them for their king. 
and uh, they began to compile huge lists of these signs and what they meant. But it's much later, maybe around 700 BC, that they began to do kind of scientific reports of, of the motion of the planets, the stars, the moon, the sun. Sometime later, maybe by 600 BC, they discovered periods for the motion of the planets. Two centuries after that, by 400 BC, they invented the zodiac, and you get mathematical astronomy. And that's the type of text that I deal with. Let's begin with ancient Babylonia. Can you describe Babylon and Babylonia for us? So these tablets were found in Babylon, which was the capital of Babylonia. Babylon is located south of modern Baghdad on the river Euphrates. In antiquity, this was a huge city that was the capital of a country, Babylonia, ancient Babylonia, which existed until about 100 AD. Babylon was a, a very big city that was the capital of this country. In this city, there were huge palaces and temples. Among them, the main temple for the Babylonian supreme god, who was Marduk, or also called Baal. And this temple not only had a lot of priests who were doing rituals and prayers, but also priests who were working on science. So there were astronomers who were employed by this temple, who were observing the sky and doing computations, and they were paid for this by the temple. The work here is based on translations of tablets, Babylonian tablets from the British Museum. What, what do they look like and how you came across them? What we knew is that there were several tablets that deal with Jupiter, and some of these tablets contain a weird procedure, a weird little bit of text that deals with trapezoids. This was known already in the 1950s, and people were wondering, what are these strange procedures, these strange little bits of text that deal with trapezoids, what are they doing on a tablet that actually deals with Jupiter? In the meantime, since then, I found two more of these texts that deal with trapezoids, also in connection with Jupiter. But really, nobody knew what they were doing. And it's only now, last year, when I found a fifth tablet that also deals with Jupiter and contains computations that are equivalent to these computations with the trapezoids, that I was able to decipher these weird tablets that deal with trapezoids. Right. And the results we're going to talk about today are a kind of mathematical astronomy that hadn't been known about before, where they look at the geometry of a problem in order to understand the motion of a planetary body. Exactly. Before this finding, when was this type of geometry thought to have started? Well, this kind of geometry that we find in the Babylonian text that I discuss for science was really previously traced back to the Middle Ages, European Middle Ages. Around 1350, there were two locations in Europe where people were doing similar stuff. So in Oxford, England, people were finding out how to compute the distance covered by a body that accelerates or decelerates, and they came up with an expression. So they say, well, you have to average the velocity. You take the initial velocity and the final one, average them, and then multiply that by the time. Then you get the distance. By the same time, someone in Paris, Nicole Oresme, found out the same thing, but he also made graphs of it. And so he drew velocity against time, and you get figures like trapezoids. 
And he proved what these people in Oxford had also come up with in a mathematical way. Well, let's go back to the Babylonians. How are they using graphing or geometry in their terms? What were they doing? Previously, we didn't really know that they were using geometry and graphs and figures in astronomy. So previously, we knew that they were doing this in mathematics. They already began to do geometry in mathematics by 1800 BC. So there's a very old tradition of geometry in mathematics, but we really didn't know. They also applied it in astronomy after 400 BC. And so what's new here is that we now know they applied geometry to compute positions of planets. That's really new. And this is Jupiter specifically. What did Jupiter look like in the sky to a Babylonian back in 350 BC? Yeah, for a Babylonian, Jupiter was like a moving star. It moves along a circle in the sky, like also the moon, the sun, and the other planets do. So there's a group of stars that move that makes them different from the other stars. And so they tried to describe the motion of this moving star. Jupiter was just one of them that they tried to follow and uh, predict. And the tablets that you looked at for this, that was kind of the big... The big find here is that the tablets describe this map. Do they show any drawings or anything? Actually, they don't show any drawings. So when they talk about the motion of Jupiter and how to compute its distance, the distance covered by Jupiter, they actually only talk about a figure. They talk about a trapezoid. They talk about its long side and its short side. And they operate with these sides. They compute the area and then they consider that as the distance traveled by Jupiter. So the geometrical objects, these trapezoids, are talked about, but actually the tablets on which they talk about these figures, they do not contain any drawings. I would like to think that they did make such drawings, and it's just a coincidence that we didn't find them, because we know that in the older mathematics of the Babylonians, they actually made drawings. So going back a thousand years before this time, they did make drawings on mathematical tablets. And these are all at the British Museum, correct? Yes, all these tablets are kept in the British Museum, and they have been there since the 1880s. So in the British Museum, there's a very big collection of tablets that were excavated in the 19th century in Babylon and other locations in Iraq and shipped to the British Museum. And as it turned out, many of these tablets, several thousands, deal with astronomy. This was discovered in the 1880s, and since then, people have been working on these tablets. But there are many that have yet to be deciphered and translated. How many tablets would you say have been translated versus untranslated? Well, of the astronomical tablets, maybe 1,000 or 1,500 have been translated. But I think there are as many astronomical tablets that have not been translated. They tend to be the smaller bits that have not been translated, because naturally, when people start to do this kind of research, they begin to look at the bigger tablets that may be easier to translate because they're complete. But I think there are many left to be translated. Why do you think that this mathematical procedure, this understanding of how to use a geometrical figure to understand movement of the planets, why do you think it wasn't passed down? Why was this knowledge basically lost for so long? Unfortunately, I would say, cuneiform culture, Babylonian culture, basically disappeared by about 100 AD. 
so the cuneiform script died out. It was forgotten. The Babylonian language also died out. People began to speak other languages and use other scripts and alphabets. And the Babylonian religion was also uh, became extinct. So a whole ancient culture that had existed for 3,000 years became extinct. And with the extinction of the script and the language, a lot of knowledge was also forgotten because only some bits of Babylonian science were translated into Greek before this culture died out. So some bits of Babylonian astronomy were passed on to Greeks and others, but a lot of the knowledge was simply forgotten because the culture died out. How did you get involved in this work in the first place? Did you come at it from the cuneiform angle or from the astronomy angle? What's your background? I really entered this field of science from astronomy. I'm originally an astrophysicist. I studied physics and astronomy. I've worked in uh, solar physics, theoretical solar physics, but I always had an interest in ancient astronomy, in the history of science and ancient languages. And I, I remember that when I studied physics, I discovered there was something called Babylonian astronomy, that the Babylonians were an ancient people that had a lot of interest and knowledge about astronomy. So that's what attracted me to the Babylonians. And I began to study their script, the cuneiform script, and their language. And so I got involved in Babylonian astronomy gradually. That's wonderful. Thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you. Mathieu Ostendriver writes about Babylonian astronomy and mathematics in this week's Science. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and many other places, or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science. But did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join.